and welcome to our Easter special of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm writer and lord of dreams, Giles Goff. And I'm test engineer and anthropomorphic representation of an abstract concept, which I challenge you to say five times fast. Phil yes! Collins. Yes! You did it. I am so proud of you. <laughs> I'm proud of me too. I will admit, I did do a little bit of practicing before we started. <laughs> For our 2022 Easter special, we'll be looking at The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's 2004 cinematic masterpiece. I rewatched this last night and I saw when it saw it when it came out. But Phil, you've literally just watched this film and I have to ask, are you okay? Blow neck, Mel. <laughs> It's a lot, isn't it? It doesn't pull its punches at all. No. It's it's quite it's quite hard watching in a lot of aspects. I, but, but that being said, I don't think that takes away from it. I think I think that is how it should be, really, because it really sort of shows the uh, how needlessly sadistic people can be. I think you know. Yeah, I think that was what yeah, I took from it. It, yeah. it reminded me of how an occupying force can really resort to absolute brutality as a means of of social control Uh, it made me think of like what the russians have been doing in the ukraine at the moment it made me think of all Mm -hmm. sorts of stuff like that and it just we're two thousand years on and this this levels of depravity just don't seem to go away do you know what i mean it's um well it's just it's just heartbreaking yeah i've got an interesting relationship to this film because it's also responsible for the first article i ever got published um, it was I got I got published in uh, Seren, Bangui University's ah! uh, student newspaper for for this one, and I tried to dig out and find my my copy, but I couldn't find it unfortunately. I, I remember but, uh, yeah. Seren. <sighs> okay, so just initial reactions before we get into it. What what are your first thoughts? I feel as though it was setting out to really drill home how much Jesus did suffer. What was the term that you use when we talk about the Matrix Reloaded versus Resurrections? It sort of like brings you down to build you back up again. Um, I said Resurrections, Matrix... didn't I? I didn't mean to say Resurrections. I meant to say Reloaded and Revolutions, just for clarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, So there's Matrix, there's Reloaded, there's Revolutions, and there's that cute fan film that got some of the original <laughs> cast back. <laughs> I always said that the faith. Matrix was about finding faith, Reloaded was about losing it, and revolutions is about f- having that faith renewed and restored, you know? Yeah, I feel as though the film is really trying to show that Jesus as a man and as mm. as the son of son of God and the son of man really did, you know, how much he really does love us as people to the point where, you know, he he got lashed and he got he got like, you know, he had to carry his cross, they forced a crown of thorns on his head, they stabbed him a bit. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just, it's quite a lot, you know, it's, yeah, and, it's and even, it and he still was just like, oh, can you please forgive them? Like, even if you don't believe in God, it's, it's quite powerful. <laughs> it's, it is mental. Like the, the scene where, uh, when he's been at the whipping post and, uh, and you just, you just see that high angle shot where it looks down and you see all the blood kind of spattered around, you know, just yeah. the sheer amount of it, all that bit where the cat and nine, nine tails like cuts into his flesh oh, yeah, and then yeah. it, like rips away, you know. It gets stuck in him for a minute, doesn't it? And then comes out and you just think Absolutely. like Do you know, I'm glad that they didn't hold any punches because that's exactly that's how that would work, right? Uh, so he was lashed thirty nine times, I believe is the is the um uh, the, the canonically accepted thing. Mm. And I re I think the reason 
Romans chose 39 times was that apparently it was believed that if you lash somebody 40 times, it would kill them. 39 was taking things like right up to the edge. Do you know what I mean? They lashed him 39 times and that's taking it right to the edge. But then they did all that other stuff and all. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's um, yeah. it's the pure sort of sadism of the of the moment and the absolute. So they're laughing in his face. They're spitting at him. They're refusing him basic amenities. They're kicking water from his hands. It's just it's really really hard to watch. Really hard to watch. Do you know what? Watching it this time, the laughter was one of the hardest things that i struggled with like yeah. i was thinking oh, we're we're recording uh about a week and a bit after will smith slapped uh chris rock at the oscars yeah and the the thing that, that i think must suck really badly is that it gets turned into a meme so from chris's perspective his moment of pain gets turned into absolute utter humiliation because the entire world is laughing at him the the constant laughter for me it was like the straw that breaks the camel's back do you know what i mean you know like you've got to be able to see that what's happened has what is happening in front of your eyes is wrong i feel as though some people don't have that kind of empathy like especially when it comes to 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 Christ himself, like he's he's literally bleeding. You can see his ribs poking out of his side and stuff like. Yeah. And these people are still laughing. It brings into sharp focus the how far down humanity can go if left to their own devices. Yeah, and I tell you something else. Uh, this film looks a little bit different on the other side of parenting. Yeah, I'm not one of those people yes. that likes to say things like, oh, and until you're a parent, you'll never understand. Because obviously, obviously you understand. You, just because you, you, you get a kid doesn't mean that you're unlocking some new level of, of empathy. But yeah. there's more of an emphasis on it. And just the way yeah. Mary is looking, there's a, a brilliant moment, one of the kind of the invented scenes where it juxtaposes... Uh, that Jesus as a child falling with Jesus as a as a man falling under the weight of the cross and Mary running to him both times and mate that just got me yeah I, I um, agree the that, idea that, that scene really got me as well the idea that that people are hurting your child and there's just there's just nothing you can do about it you know yeah. and one of the one of the things I found fascinating is that all the disciples are, are freaked out but Mary understands what's going on you know she knows she seems to have an additional insight in into the into that thing, you know. She really seems to hold it together quite well for someone who's literally watching her son yeah. be murdered in front of her eyes. Yeah, definitely. The the um there were some beautiful moments of levity though. Mm. There's that one uh, invented scene where you know what before Jesus starts his ministry when he's when he's just finished making a table. Oh yeah. And that scene where he's saying, "Look, uh, a rich man wanted a table," and they're like, "It's it's so high." And there's that bit where Mary's trying to, like, "How would I? How 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 yeah. would you sit at this?" She doesn't quite figure it out. And there's that bit where she gets it. She's like, "Come in for dinner, wash hands," and then he just flicks a little bit of water at her, and it's beautiful because. I feel like that moment shows the humanity in a way that a lot of not a lot of other stuff does, you know? Yeah. A lot of the time the way Jesus is depicted in the gospels is uh being either peaceful or frustrated, you know? He's incredibly frustrated with his followers that they're not getting this stuff. Now, speaking as somebody who has to teach a class of teenage boys <laughs> to pass an exam and they are still not getting it and you're like okay your GCSEs are tomorrow how do you not get how do you know like, 
Yeah, it's the it's that frustration he's got there, but it's the we either get to see him as as being being angry and like like this is the night. How could you guys not just stay awake for me a little bit longer, you know? Or there's the the loving side which can come off as a bit a bit twee. I felt that that invented scene of that just that that intimacy between him and his mother was absolutely beautiful, you know. Yeah, I think that added a lot. You know, it gave a bit of a um, it gave the audience like a, a, a they reached a hand out to the audience to say, look, this person he might be the son of God, but also he is you know human and he's yeah. you know he he carries our sins. Yeah, definitely. So before we go any further, I thought it was really important to address the elephant in the room, and that is racist ass Mel Gibson. Okay. Yeah. So Mel Gibson's the director of this film. He has said some things in the past which are absolutely reprehensible. I won't repeat them here, and you can find them on the internet if you really want to. But they are absolutely beyond the pale in a lot of ways. In in many ways, Mel Gibson is proof that cancel culture isn't a thing because he said these things. They are a matter of public record, and he still manages to get work. You know, and I feel this tremendous sense of disappointment with him that he's created some wonderful things. He's a he's a he's an actor that I, that I love, and yet he said some stuff which are just is absolutely terrible. So yeah. the the question then is, what is our response to that? What do we as as consumers as do? And does that mean we shouldn't watch anything that he's in or anything that he's directed? And I've I've been chewing that one over and i was thinking about something that deborah francis white said deborah francis white is the host of the guilty feminist podcast and she is claire's yeah. absolute hero and she said that when it comes to something when it comes to something like filmmaking if somebody does something that's beyond the pale that we should still continue to watch their films and the reason she did that was uh, when the kevin spacey controversy came to light she said about american beauty that if you never watch american beauty again Yes, you won't have to deal with Kevin Spacey, but you'll also miss out on Annette Benning's performance. You'll miss out on Mina Savare's performance and so on. So yeah. similarly, if we don't watch any Mel Gibson films because we don't like Mel Gibson, then we miss out on Jim, Jim Caviezel's performance as Jesus here, and we miss out on Andrew Garfield's performance in Hacksaw Ridge. And for my money, that would be a, an absolutely terrible loss, you know? Yeah, I feel as though there comes a point when you know one per one particular artist's vision yes it can be a little bit tarnished by you know some of the things that that artist may say but at the end of the day it's a collaborative art form and there Absolutely. are there are, there are hundreds thousands more minds that have gone into this to make this vision come true not you know no less the actors the people who dress the set the people who do the costumes and so yeah. on and so on to the end of time it's the it, thing it's, we talk about all the time is that him. filmmaking is a, is a team sport you know you can't yeah. as much as we like to talk about auteurs that's more for convenience than anything else you know <laughs> so we're gonna do what harry potter fans do and separate the text from the author in order to sort of appreciate this I think it's also important to to keep things in context. Unlike unlike the Kevin Spacey, uh, Mel Gibson hasn't sexually assaulted anybody. He's not he's not sort of beaten anyone to death or anything like that. He said some very very bad things, you know. Mm. And we should keep that in context, but we also should keep that in scope. What I will say though, there's a scene in the film, obviously at the crucifixion, where Mel Gibson hands nail Christ the cross during the crucifixion scene, and Gibson said, it was me that put him on the cross. It was my sins that put him there. And for me, I think that's an incredible bit of self-reflection 
and maturity because if I was putting myself as a cameo in this, you know, I would have helped Jesus with the cross or or I would have been Peter just cutting off a dude's ear like nobody's business. So I think the fact that he makes himself, that his hand is the one putting the nails in shows, yeah, a real maturity and a real capacity for self-reflection. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah, I read about that. I read about yeah. that. And I, there was something about that that I, I thought was very symbolic, in a, in a, but in quite a mature fashion. Like, cause yeah. there's a there is a a tendency for there to be um, a lot of ego when it comes to yeah. making a film, uh, especially from the person who make who is who is the lead creative, let's say. Yeah. So to be able to take your yourself out of that and do something symbolic for something that you believe in quite fervently, I, I can't fault that, and I think that's wonderful. I think he did yeah. something very mature. And if anything gives me hope for Mel Gibson, it's that you know, yeah. it's it's the idea that he has some capacity for self-reflection and i hope we can get to the point at some point in the future when we can love him and appreciate his stuff in an uncomplicated manner again yeah anyway that is one hell of an intro that we've done (laughs) i know yeah now it's time for (gasps) phil's facts so the passion of the christ is a 2004 Mm -hmm. american epic biblical drama film produced directed and co-written by mel gibson and starring jim caviezel as jesus of nazareth the film primarily covers the final 12 hours before Jesus Christ's death, known as the Passion, hence the title of the film, with flashbacks to particular moments of Jesus' life, some of which are biblically based and some of which have been made up for the film. The film has been controversial and received largely polarised reviews, with some critics calling the film religious and holy experience, while others found the extreme violence to be devastating and excessive. According to Mel Gibson, The long shot of Jesus lying in Mary's arms after having been taken from the cross was greatly inspired by Michelangelo's famous statue, La Pieta, a work of art that inspired many other depictions of this scene. Yeah, I thought that's that's the moment where he's he's lying in her arms as he's taken off the off the cross, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did recognize yeah. it as well. Like I'm not as familiar with that with that painting, but it's quite a striking image and it's one that sort of it's it was instantly recognizable to me. Yeah. And I felt that was quite, you know, I thought it was good to to have that as like a, a further connection to other audiences and such. It would usually take over 10 hours to put Jim Caviezel into the scourged makeup. On some of those days, it would happen that the weather conditions actually would turn out to be unsuitable for filming. So to avoid spending more hours to have it removed and reapplied the next day, he just kept it on and went to bed in full makeup, which is terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine that? Hello, darling. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's just he wakes up next to his wife's like, morning. So how was your day? Oh, you know, not so bad. Went to the shop, got some eggs, got some milk. How about you? Well, I carried cross, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) It was awful. (laughs) Oh, dear. When this Latin and Aramaic language film was announced, Mel Gibson stated that his intent was to release it without subtitles, letting the performances speak for themselves. However, subtitles were added later. Thank you. Thank you for oh, thank you for putting yeah. the subtitles in, Mel, because I'm, I'm going to be honest, my Latin's not really up to scratch, neither is my Aramaic. Yeah. That's the clue that you've spent too long in, in filming mode when you're like, but yeah, oh, like, what do you mean you can't speak first century Aramaic? You know, that's... That. <laughs> like, Did you like, notice? <laughs> there was one no, bit on. in the... in the Maybe it was just my version, but in the torture scene, 
you can't uh, there's no subtitles for what the Roman soldiers are saying was that I, was that I, just I me or I did notice that I think the reason why we don't get the Roman soldiers it's talking in that scene is that you've got people in a position of power over you you've got the fact that you've got people in a position to torture you and you can't understand what they're saying further emphasizes that sense of fear and alienation means it makes them impossible to reason with it makes it impossible to work out whether they are going to stop anytime soon or whether they're building up or anything like that do you know what i mean yeah no i've got a feeling that would work because you'd be in such a daze anyway my ribs are sticking out do you know what i mean like you know there's there's going to be more pressing things that are on your mind according to caleb deschanel the cinematographer The majority of the movie was shot with a speed above the normal 24 frames per second. This was done to create a sense of relative slow motion in most scenes, which gave the performance and its events more weight and drama, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah, I noticed that. It's a very uh, gruelling film, and I think the the fact that it happens so slowly in times kind of adds Mm. to that. I did notice the music, the kind of the sort of like wailing kind of sounds in the background. Uh, they, They feel quite cliched now. You know, whereas because you tend to hear them for very like this is a very dramatic scene, but I don't ever remember sort of feeling that at the time or noticing it at the time. So I kind of feel like maybe this is one of the things that's kind of inspired that as a yeah. as a, a convention. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, perhaps actually. Yeah, it it I feel like it does add to it quite nicely though because it's it's harrowing. Mm. The whole film is quite harrowing, really. So. Yeah. You know, it doesn't let up. So Jim Caviezel <laughs> spoke about the difficulty he experienced whilst filming. Uh, this included being accidentally whipped twice, which has left a 14-inch scar on his back mm. and dislocating his shoulder from the weight of the cross. Caviezel also admitted that he was struck by lightning while filming the Sermon on the Mount and during the crucifixion. His hair actually caught on fire from this, uh, but he was otherwise miraculously unharmed. The scenes of him hanging from the cross in the dead of Italian winter with temperatures of 25 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 4 degrees Celsius with 30 knot winds caused him to contract hypothermia and new pneumonia and finally as if all that weren't enough because the eye makeup that was used was used to do his swollen eye his lack of depth mm-hmm. perception gave him migraines with passion of jim do you know what i mean like, suffering for your art do you know what i mean you know, like, like fair play jim, jim caviezel's like... a badass <laughs> there's no way I, if someone gave me a job I... like that i'd be like no actually i'm fine this is all what it's like for the guy playing Jesus. This is why Imagine I wanted to include this. Jesus yeah. in this situation. If this is how it's like acting like Jesus, you know, it must have mm. been quite brutal to be him at the time. So one, one of the things I like about, about The Passion is that nobody ever needs to make a film like this again. Do you know what I mean? It shows the absolute brutal reality. In my, in, for my mind, I think in some ways they might have like, they might have held off because... I'm pretty sure the Romans have the capacity to be even more sort of like sick and depraved than uh, than is depicted here, you know? That was actually one of the facts that I omitted, yeah. uh, to which Mel Gibson said something to the tune of, I don't know his exact quotes, I'm not going in front of me, but it was something like, well, I mean, I felt as though that was necessary to show the sort of how much he did suffer for us. And frankly, it could have been worse. I could have shown more. It's already harrowing enough. There's only so much I think yeah. an audience could take without thinking this looks like a snuff film, you know. So it's uh, it's a lot. And finally, the initial interview scene between Pilate and Jesus contains a neat linguistic Easter egg that most viewers might not notice. So after Pilate asks Jesus in Aramaic if he's the king of the Jews, Jesus answers him in fluent Latin. 
translated as, does this question come from you? The look of surprise on Pilate's face thus makes perfect sense. Few, if any, of his subjects speak Latin, and then from this point forward, their whole conversation continues in fluent Latin. See, I think that's fascinating. I right. love One of the things that. that you notice when you read the uh, the New Testament is there's just some of these, what I like to think of as low-key miracles, <laughs> where it's like, yeah, we're not making a big deal of it, but, you know, this dude is totally miraculous, no big deal, whatever, you know? Yeah, it's just a low-key miracle that Jesus would be able to understand him speaking in Latin, because where is a kid from Nazareth going to learn how to speak Latin? You know, it's not going to come up that much. So the fact that he just is able to speak uh, completely fluently with him, I find absolutely beautiful. I like the idea of them being like JC's mini miracles. <laughs> you know? <laughs> bite-sized miracles for the bite-sized man, you know? <laughs> yeah. In this, we've got him speaking Aramaic and obviously Latin. And what is not depicted is him speaking Welsh because obviously that's the language of heaven. <laughs> it's been established by now. Well, that's, that is in uh, Jesus canon, um, I believe. You know, like this. Tinyaun! I'm going to do the Sermon on the Mount. You better be there. I've got lots of fish. I don't think that was actually the same thing, was it? Well, I'll tell you what you've done there. That's conflation. Uh. To combine into one, two sort of uh, stories or ideas or something like that. Now, there is an interesting little bit of conflation, narrative conflation, in this. As as somebody adapting a text, this is the sort of thing that happens all the time, where you're like, okay, I know you've got three characters here, but we really need to keep this to to the point, so I'm going to narrow it down into one. There is a flashback scene from Mary Magdalene's perspective, where you see Jesus just sort of like writing in the sand on the ground. You see these dudes off in the distance all dropping their stones, and then you see Mary like kind of kiss his feet yeah yeah i did see that yeah yeah so that's a really famous scene where uh the pharisees have brought a woman who's caught in adultery to jesus and they say look what what should we do this woman was caught in adultery the the torah says we should stone her to death what should we do you know and they're trying to catch him out because either he says don't stone it in which case you're ignoring god's law or you say stoner, in which case you're not really showing that love and forgiveness. Do you know what I mean? So he's screwed either way on this point. So yeah. Jesus says, all right, losers. I might be paraphrasing. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Course, you know? yeah, of and of course. course, Jesus is the one who's, who's without sin. And he ain't throwing anything, you know. And there's a brilliant point where it mentions how the older ones dropped their stones first and, and started to walk away. Because it's the old ones who've done the more sinning than the younger ones, you know. And if you look at the way Mary is is portrayed in that bit, she's got she's got the earrings on, she's got the jewelry. So the connotation is that she's a she's a prostitute. Mm. Now there is no proof whatsoever that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute or had any kind of sexual immorality or anything like that that aspect of conflation is something we have seen over and over where it'll be like a woman did this and she was crying and jesus forgave her and of course because there's only one woman mentioned in the gospel who's not his mum, it always ends up being Mary. Mary, do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, Mary Magdalene, yeah. So, like I say, Mary's had a little bit of a character assassination over the years, and we we made a film basically about this concept last yeah, year. Yeah, about you a know? year ago that came out. Now, wasn't it? Because it yeah, about Easter a year. Time. Well, I'll put a link. I to can't that believe the, that was a year in the description. But yeah, <sighs> and like that's not so. That's not Mel Gibson's own particular 
thing. That is, do you remember when I talk about Christian headcanon? Yeah, yeah. That is is a fairly established Christian headcanon going back a few hundred years. You know, I like Christian headcanon. I'll never not yeah. like that phrase. I think that's great. <laughs> awesome source. Now, Phil, I'm guessing that as an atheist, you probably see Jesus as a teacher that existed. And even though he wasn't the son of God, he was still a good man. Have I got that about right? I would say so. Well, unfortunately, our next guest is here to disabuse you of that notion. <laughs> She's been on the podcast before. We got to know her because of this podcast. So we are podcast friends. And to be honest with you, I wish I'd had her as my RE teacher. I'll let her introduce herself. Hello, I'm Louisa Jane Smith, host of the RE podcast and RE teacher extraordinaire. <laughs> Louisa, it is so good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Lovely to be back. I've got to say, RE podcast is one of my absolute favourites. Uh, absolutely smashing it. And your uh, your download figures make me so intensely jealous. I can't oh, even put it into words. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If, I tell you what, if I got a pound for every download I got... <laughs> I mean, I'd still be poor, but... You'd be able to go to Mackey's on a more regular basis. <laughs> I have the vegan burger. Mm. So last time we had you on, you were talking about the West Wing. This one's going to be a bit of a busman's holiday for you because you are just going to be talking about Jesus, which is pretty much what one of the things you do in your day job anyway. <laughs> yes. So what is the historical basis for Jesus? Or, or is there a historical basis mm. for, for Jesus? I mean, there is. He's considered an historical character by historians. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important if we're talking about the historicity of Jesus that we distinguish between Jesus as an historical character and Jesus as a biblical character. Sure. Because they're almost two different things. And I think to say that he exists historically does not mean to say that everything he says or claims to have said or has been has done is also true. Right. So we can say that he existed. We can't say that he was God. We can't say that he rose from the dead we just know that he existed any of us we both any exist but the things that people say about us may not necessarily be true gotcha. so i think this is important because i think a lot of people are hesitant to believe in the historical jesus because they don't want to accept that he's the son of god mm. and good news is you don't have to Okay. All right. Interesting. Um, so I think what we've got to remember is that he was quite uh, a prominent figure at the time. And so lots of people wrote about him, mm -hmm. not only his closest followers. So we've got eyewitness accounts of people that knew him, like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. But I think a lot of people don't accept that as an historical document, even though the Bible is an historical document. So when you say the Bible is a historical document, what, like, what does that mean? It means that the people that wrote it existed. Right, okay. It doesn't mean that everything they wrote was true, but that okay. noth nothing in history you can say is absolute fact because it's written from the point of view of one person. Mm. So there's, it's going to be nuanced and it's going to be biased. So yeah. it's an historical document because it was written by people who existed about events that actually happened. Okay. So the birth of Jesus actually happened. And the way we know that is because we've got not only the Gospels, which were eyewitness accounts, but we've also got Josephus, who was quite a famous Ju uh, Jewish historian. And actually, if you think about what Josephus wrote about Jesus he did not write he was just this guy that existed and didn't do very much mm -hmm. but actually that there was something about him that he claimed to be God and he did miraculous feats and sure. that there are people that believed that he came back to life and these became a religion that yeah. followed Christ so it's not just that he existed it's that he did claim to be something other than just a normal human and he did things that meant other people followed him as somebody who was extraordinary 
Sure. Okay. All right. So that's Josephus. Um, but you might think, well, actually, the Jews were waiting for a Messiah. So maybe Josephus was kind of making it up. What you really need is evidence from people that had no vested interest in Jesus being who he said he was. Yeah. And so we find that in the person of Tacitus. Right. Okay. Who's probably yeah. the one... absolute lad. Yes. You know. You know. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually was respected amongst Romans and is respected by historians today as somebody who was very good at writing things down and provides a huge amount of evidence um, of other things that happened at the time, not just Jesus. And again, uh, Tacitus talks about sort of the problems that Jesus caused in society, that actually sort of um, disturbances is what is, is the word that Tacitus uses. Mm. And actually what Tacitus writes about, which is one of the most significant events in 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 Christianity is the execution, the crucifixion of Jesus. So not only do we know he existed, we also know he caused disturbances. We know that he did what uh, Tacitus calls paradoxical feats. So things that were difficult to, to, to understand or to find a logical reason for so things we might call miracles yeah you know and i think you could be blindly accept that as evidence of uh, that jesus was god absolutely not it just mm-hmm. means he did things that people couldn't understand how he could do them right okay and also he was known as a great teacher so this is historical fact that he was a great teacher and that he died you know that they they wrote down everybody they executed and why they executed them so mm. jesus was somebody who was crucified by the romans do you know the one miracle nobody ever talks about is the sermon on the mount how he manages to preach to that many thousands of people without a decent av set up you know <laughs> yeah. still messes with my head that one no he probably he just understood acoustics way before his time <laughs> <laughs> okay so there is a there is a definite a uh, historical man called Jesus. Yeah. I've been working on the idea that he was born in about 4 BC, but when I looked into trying to pin down the date cuz yeah. I had to I was writing a sketch about the about the wise men and trying to find things to marry up. So it was like it was either some people say 4 BC, some people say 7 BC. Mm. And I'm sure there's probably a, a range of opinions in in between. Yeah. But if we accept that he is an actual person and that people that, that try to discredit his existence at all, it, it's not a, a particularly coherent argument. That leaves us with a, a, a bit of a quandary then, doesn't it? Hmm. That C.S. Lewis picked upon. Yes. Well, it's interesting, actually, because C.S. Lewis was actually the third person to come up with this idea. Okay. But it's the most popular version of it. Right. So okay. I think um, there was someone like in the 18th century, some rabbi called John Duncan, who said something very similar, that either Jesus was uh, deceived, either he deceived mankind, he was a fraud, <laughs> or he himself was deluded and, and a bit crazy, or he was divine. That that yeah. was your kind of like your three options. And then probably like, you know, 100 years later, in the sort of um, early, or 200 years later, in about sort of 1936, a guy called Watchman Nee made a very similar argument that either Jesus... What, sorry his name what? was watchman knee okay um i mean uh, do you know what i'm called giles i can't make fun of anybody else's name <laughs> i know it's, it's a great name you know so that actually he either has to be mad or he's a liar or he's god so actually this argument that we're gonna that, that's probably made popular by c.s lewis is one that's kind of he sort of refashioned from from other people but i think he's put it much more succinctly and mm. and it sort of captured uh, people i think a lot and actually it was uh, it's his book mere christianity which is actually a book written on a series of radio um addresses that he gave on on who jesus is and what i love about c.s lewis is he was a reluctant christian yeah. uh, and one of my favorite quotes from him is um, when he was at university and he was studying 
and he felt the unrelenting approach of him who he most did not want to meet. (laughs) And he said that night he knelt down in his room the most reluctant convert in Christendom. Um, You know, and I love that because he really did not want to believe that Christianity was right. And actually, in the end, uh, the the, um, evidence for him was irrefutable. Yeah. So what he was trying to say is that actually I want people to realize that believing in Jesus is logical. Yeah. And that you should never say stupid things as a reason for your disbelief. So a lot of people say about Jesus, look, I understand he existed. I think he was just a good man. Yeah. He was nothing more. And I think C.S. Lewis, that kind of got his goat up. He was saying, you can say whatever you like, don't ever call him a good man. Because yeah. a good man would never claim to be God. If, that's, yeah. if he was just a great moral leader, he would not claim to be God. So your only three options when it comes to Jesus is one, he was completely deluded. He was mad. He was crazy. And he had these sort of delusions about himself. Mm-hmm. Or he was a great deceiver and he lied to people and he was coercive and he was narcissistic and he coerced people into believing or he was who he said he is. Um, I'm just going to sort of just, it's quite a long quote, but actually at the end it says, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And I think that's that sort of summarizes it up that if you look at the teachings of Jesus he wasn't a lunatic he wasn't crazy mm-hmm. he wasn't lying he was too consistent in what he was saying and also for 2000 years later for that life to still be impacting people today and becoming the biggest religion in the world yeah that actually it doesn't make sense to call him a liar or a lunatic so here's what I don't get though how do you because you're you're a atheist or agnostic agnostic Agnostic. Yes. So, because that realisation comes with an implicit challenge attached to it. Mm. I mean, I know what my answer is to to that that, that triplet. How do you reconcile that then? Mm. I think it's interesting. I think, let me just explain to you why I'm agnostic and not atheist. Sure. And it goes back to the term agnostic, which means not knowing. And this Mm -hmm. was Huxley, who was, I think, Aldous Huxley's grandfather, who came up, coined the term agnostic. And he was saying that it doesn't mean that you don't know whether God exists. It means it's not possible to know. There is no evidence for or against the existence of God. So therefore, if you are an atheist, that is a faith claim because you've no evidence that God doesn't exist. If you are a theist, there's no empirical scientific evidence Mm -hmm. that God exists. So it's a faith claim. You believe that. What I believe is that anything that happens, any phenomenon is scientific. And I think that that, that God, people experience God in different ways. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there is an all-powerful, all-loving, intelligent being that created the earth that's going to punish us and send us to hell or anything like that. Okay. Do I believe that there are things greater than I can understand? Absolutely. So therefore, I don't think Jesus was crazy because I think the things that he said were too astute and too powerful. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was trying to deceive anybody because of the suffering that he went through for doing that. Yeah. I do think he had a knowledge that was greater than I can understand. Sure. 
And so therefore, that doesn't make him God. That doesn't prove that God existed. It just proves that actually what he says is significant. He was a significant person in history. He had knowledge beyond what I know. And there are still people today that have knowledge beyond what I know and come up with incredible wisdom. Um, I'm thinking, you know, Lao Tzu or, you know, Martin Luther King or anyone like that. I think there are people in history that have allowed themselves to access a greater knowledge than most of us for whatever reason, whether it's through meditation or whatever it might be. So we know that Jesus spent 40 days on his own. Mm -hmm. If most of us spent 40 days without devices, we could probably access a greater truth than we would normally allow in our everyday lives. So this is how I see Jesus. I don't see him as someone who was crazy. I don't see him as just a human, normal human being. I think he's one of these people that they've been throughout history that just accesses a greater wisdom. That's fascinating. I mean, like I completely disagree with you, but that's fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, listen, Lou, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It took, asked me to talk about Jesus and I'm there. So, Phil, that was Louisa Jane Smith. What did you think? Oh, I want to be her friend. She, I've got so many... Th- <laughs> there is so much that I could talk to her about when it comes to like what I think of Jesus. Because, frankly, I think I completely agree with her. I believe that Jesus was a real man. I believe he did things that we couldn't explain. Mm. There's no proof for or against whether God does actually exist, whether he could have been the son of God. So it's starting to make me think, and I've mentioned this before on this podcast, it's starting to make me think that maybe I might I might be agnostic rather than completely atheist. Because, you know something, I'd, lo- <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd love for there to be some proof that God does exist. Because then I'd be like, look, I'm really sorry for all the things. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, actually, because I really wouldn't mind being in the good place. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But um, so I just... I, I want proof that God exists so I can go back to my secondary school and be like i told you losers <laughs> yeah no I, you know what i think if, if it was proved that god didn't exist i'd just i'd actually be quite sad because there'd be so many crushed human beings yeah. <laughs> you know like it'd be i don't think i would yeah. want i don't want i don't know if i want proof for or against because either way i think it'd be bad i, I wish yeah, i had more to yeah, say other than that but i was just like actually yeah you've you've hit the nail on the head there the, the reason i picked louisa aside from her being awesome is that i wanted somebody who is an unbeliever to come and talk to you about the historicity of Jesus because if I got a Christian and asked them was Jesus a real historical figure they'd be like yes and you'd be like uh-huh yeah well that's I mean um, bring the discourse come on <laughs> you know just <laughs> yeah so having somebody who who doesn't believe in Jesus as the son of God and saying yeah well this dude was real and then going through the lunatic lord or liar thing that uh, C.S. Lewis mentioned I thought would have a, have a good impact you know I think that was probably one of the best one best interviews that I've heard since we started doing this you know it really that really gave me some insight and it made me I don't know I just felt I felt I felt a bit more seen in that one that was really good I really liked that. Louisa will love to hear that, I'm sure. Good. Louisa, okay. le- Louisa let's, let's be friends. <laughs> now, we're going to switch it up a little bit here because normally I do Finding the Faith in the Film where I look for just little parallels about things that would connect <laughs> to the gospel story. And I, I don't know, Phil. <laughs> what do you think the spiritual message of this film might be? I feel like it's, yeah. it might have something I, to do with G, with our Jesus there. I think if you look closely, I think you'll see that the message of this film is that Jesus died for our sins and then was resurrected. Again, you got to look close, otherwise you'll miss it. It's, it you but, know, I, uh, I believe that's actually in one of the deleted scenes 
that they, they explicitly go, by the way, this is all about Jesus. He died for our sins, came well, back. The thing I love is there's that little coda scene in the two in the um in the tomb, isn't there, where the stone is being rolled away? Yeah. And you see like one of the things about Jesus when they find the empty tomb is that his grave clothes, his bandages, they're flattened down. So they've not been unwrapped. They are literally in the position, but they've just there's just nothing in them. As if he's just kind of been out of like, there, like he slipped. You know? Like I don't know why, but my first thought was him just sort of sliding out of it like a snake. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, oh. <laughs> it's an interesting like comparison, but you know, you, you're close to it, you know. The last shot where the hands are completely like see through. Like I'm not a hundred percent certain that that's exactly what they look like post resurrection, but we do know after the resurrection that there were still some scars there you know in the, on the hands and, well, and and his ribs you know I, I remember very vividly that that scene where they were like where basically there was people being like jesus it can't it can't be you you can't be back yeah. and it's like well you can put the whole you can put your things in the hole in my yeah. hand if you want to believe if you want to believe it really is me yeah that Ruth. is um saint thomas or doubting thomas as he sometimes oh called, that's you know? the one yeah and like doubting Thomas gets a bad rap because obviously he is remembered for this one area where he kind of wobbled a little bit, you know. Yeah, I mean, like if I was called doubting Thomas, I'd I'd have to go to more than therapy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, and also like Peter gets a bad rap for sort of denying Jesus three times, you know. Like Peter is is the you know before he like as you say Peter likes to throw hands, you know. He was he is not afraid to to sort of to like reach for sword and like all right, like yeah, man, guys, man, let's, man's man's let's gonna show off. you what for. Man's gonna man's gonna yeah. defend. And then obviously when he's surrounded by an absolute crowd of people, he's terrified and he he denies Jesus, and it you can tell it absolutely breaks him. The thing I wanted to pick out though is that I didn't see any other flipping disciples there. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, the, the, like one thing that I did notice about this, the mm-hmm. entire film actually, there was an express deficit of disciples. It is disciple light, isn't it? it you is. know, you've got you've got Peter there, you've got John, who generally speaking, Peter's thought of as being the oldest, and generally speaking, John is thought of as being the youngest disciple. You know, mm. um, there's like in the John's Gospel. John refers him to to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, which I think we've talked about that before. It's a little bit like, really, really, dude, that's that's, that's, that's a bit favouritist, that, but all right. <laughs> I think what it means is the one that Jesus loved like a brother, you know. Yeah, no, but, there's 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 different modes of love. I could, well, yeah, I can... but the thing is, right, Jesus loved everybody like that. Jesus made could make everybody feel special like that do you know what i mean and it, yeah. it hit me on this this watch where before his his last act his la- the last thing he does before he says father into my hands into your hands i commend my spirit the last actual legal act he does is he says like mother here is your son indicating john and then john you know son here is your mother and it got me like the last thing jesus does before he dies is he makes sure his mum is taken care of yeah that is that is quite something to be fair it's I'm, it's I'm, just i'm tearing up just thinking yeah it's just it, like you know? it's like we well, just make sure my mum's all right uh, honestly I, yeah if i if i was in that position i'd i'd probably want to do something similar because my mum has been such a such an absolute rock throughout my whole life yeah and Oh, I don't know what I'd do. You know, I don't know. Yeah. What, I, I do not know what I'd do without her, and I don't particularly want to find out. <laughs> yeah, we both love our mums very much. You know, um, certified anyway. mummy's boy. I'm gonna. I'll get that on a t-shirt, <laughs> yeah. and you know what? I'll wear that proudly. Every. I'll get one for every day of the week. You know. What I mean? Anyway, I'm gonna introduce a a new segment for this film, and probably this film only, and it's called. <gasps> 
Finding the fact in the film. Da 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 da. <laughs> love it. I love it. I wanted to. I, I, you know, I figured I have to change this all. <laughs> so for starters, let's deal with the easy stuff. So there's no uh, reference to the devil or Satan uh, being directly present during the passion story. You know. Yeah, I noticed that. I noticed that, and I was just there like he looks a bit satany. <laughs> but I tell you something that is some real good filmmaking craft because it personifies evil and it puts him right there and it puts evil there in a way that I don't think you'd expect, you know? It's it, the... it's like a cowering well, evil. Mm. That's kind of how I would describe it. It's more of a, a, a slight and devious evil, which you wouldn't... Yeah. It's not outwardly sort of... It's almost like a, an, a dark advisor in the shadows. Yeah, absolutely. And the way the way it shows um, Judas getting tortured uh, oh, by yeah. like these, these sort of demonic characters, this is the thing that always gets me about how Jesus, uh, Judas is portrayed as being completely evil. But if you're evil you do not feel such an overwhelming sense of guilt that you commit suicide. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Evil people don't feel remorse. Evil that's, people don't feel remorse. That's, that's yeah. just sort of like one of them evil people things. <laughs> and one of the scenes where you see the devil with that sort of creepy baby, the way it's kind of, it takes something like look, like looking after and sort of caring for a baby is one of the most beautiful things. And then mm. being able to sort of take it and subvert it like that creeps and and do you notice the way it moves so kind of smoothly and and yeah it reminded me of in braveheart during william wallace's kind of torture scene and he kind of sees his wife in like sees her face in the crowds you know it felt it felt like gibson was taking a concept and a technique that he'd used before and just kind of inverting it a bit. Yeah, it's like almost like he sort of glides across screen. He doesn't really... Mm. He's not stepping through because he's he's not actually physically present in the space at the time, but can't yeah. be perceived. It's, it's it's really quite fascinating. And plus, the I think the character design, just the simplicity of it, was just yeah. beautiful as well. I found that... Because uh, you can very, very clearly tell who that's meant to be. Um, so there's no, refer- there's no direct reference to the devil or Satan knowing, uh, sort of seeing what's going on there. Sure. It's interesting that there's a bit in the Garden of Gethsemane where the devil talks about, like, it's no one can take on all of mankind's sins. It's too much. Yeah. It's interesting because that to me sounds like Satan knows what the plan is. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. The fact that this sort of thing is is sort of predetermined, and that scream at the end where you're there's a completely different color palette, and you see that like like zoom out of Satan is screaming up at the, at the camera. It, you know that sense of of like of defeat in that moment. But he seems to. Do you know what I mean? It's, it 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 left me with a lot of questions, and I quite like that. It's one of those things. It's an interpretation by Mel Gibson, but it's not it's not explicit. It, it allows the audience to be fascinated and to draw their own conclusion as to what that may or may not mean big fan of that yeah so there's that bit where the sort of snake comes out from satan's robes mm-hmm. and jesus stamps on the head of the the snake doesn't he yeah he does yeah and that's completely made up that is not there's no there's no biblical argument for that yeah I, I... what that is what that is is that's a callback to genesis right oh. oh actually so like adam and eve get kicked out of uh of eden yeah and the lord is is kind of mad at them and yeah. he's mad at the serpent as well so the lord god said to the serpent because you've done this cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals you'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life and i'll put 
enmity between you and the woman and between your offering and hers he will crush your head and you will strike his heel and the idea is that the way christians tend to interpret that is that like satan struck jesus's heel who is the offspring of a woman as we've as we've talked about in the past and you know satan struck his heel which hurts but jesus crushed his head which is a lot more permanent i tell you what just going back to the depiction of satan for a second as well i I quite like the fact that he's just (laughs) satan says you you know you can't take on the sins of everybody it's too much and then and basically jesus there just kind of like watch me you spooky weirdo (laughs) you know just (laughs) it's just great i just you just see it in his eyes he's just there like i'm I'm gonna do it you you baldy go away you know (laughs) Like the Garden of Gethsemane gets me every time, and and I'm not alone on this. The way he's like, look, if there's any other way of doing this, let's do that. Yeah, just just. But if if there isn't, you will do things your way. You know, it's again. This is the thing that hits me about Jesus as a as a deity, as a hero, as as all these things is that there is the sense of humility which you don't get in other meta narratives do you know what i mean yeah it's just like you know throws a bone because this is going to be quite a bit this isn't it you know like it's going to be quite a lot yeah i'm not sure i'm prepared and he knows he knows what it is he knows that this is what he came here to do yeah of course this was always part of the plan and this is what he volunteered for but it's still scary for him you know absolutely i think any any human would be scared which again just it it further illustrates that humanity the next one is there's a scene I don't know if you remember as he's carrying the cross up to up to uh, Golgotha, mm-hmm. a woman comes out and wipes his yeah. face with the cloth. Yeah, tries to offer some water and they kick the water you know. away from him. Oh, I was, I was livid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just there like just let the man have a, just a sip. I mean, come on. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I will livid. I was. I was going to go up and tell that Roman exactly what I thought of him. I will just hear <laughs> like you know what you know what Jesus come with me. Everyone's just pure snakes here. It's just me and you from now on. <laughs> pure snakes, mate. DM me, hon. <laughs> I quite enjoy these moments in the podcast where I destroy Giles with comedy. <laughs> right, these are my favourite bits. Every time. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So believe it or not, you're going to love this. But that woman is thought of in Christian tradition as being called Veronica. Veronica. And... Veronica, I kid you not. That's, the, that's, that's, that's obviously a... the anglicization of it. Amazing. Um, but so the idea is that this woman came, wiped Jesus' face, and it left an imprint of Jesus' face on the on the cloth. You know, and it's it's known as the the veil of Veronica. And this is the kind of thing that was a, a holy relic. It was uh, a big deal in. In the Catholic tradition, Mel Gibson is is very much Catholic. You never get to see what's on the cloth, so I feel like Gibson is like, it's like he's put that one in there for his Catholic mates. But there's not, <laughs> he's not gone, he's not gone too far as to, so far as to actually show it. So if you want it to be that, it can be that. But if you don't want it to be that, it, just imagine it, him it like, won't be. Do you know what I mean? Nudge, nudge, winking his mates. You know, just kind of like, hey, it, yeah. let's veil that. Thought I'd pop that one in there. Do you like that? You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> So again, that's that's Christian headcanon. We've not got any proof for that for definite, but so yeah. that's one of those other things which we can't really 
prove it, you know? Sure, sure. So now I want to get on to obviously the most contentious uh, issue of a man dies and then literally comes back to life. You know, the, 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 Which I feel is, is a biggie. You well, know, there's, there's quite there's quite a lot to unpack there, really, isn't there? Do you know what I mean? Like, there is quite a lot to unpack. You know, so what we're going to do is we're going to sidestep the issue of actual resurrection, and we're going to look at some of the alternative theories to the resurrection. Some what people have thought might have happened instead. Sure, and try and unpack them you with me yeah so again this is another one i owe to uh, louisa jane smith who sort of brought a lot of this stuff to my attention she told me about a particular mnemonic called uh, that's remembered as pleasure and it's a way of trying to evaluate how strong or weak an argument is okay yeah. so the the first the p is for positive outcome if this had happened is there a positive outcome for it l is it logical E, is it evidence-based? Is it A, is it from a relevant source of authority? S, is it supported by many people? U, is it unique? R, is it relevant? And E, is it ethical? And these are the kind of questions that are kind of meant to be swirling around your head. It's a lot of questions. <laughs> it's a, it is a lot of questions, I, I grant you that, you know? Yeah. So we're going to go through just, just a few of these one by one and just break it down. So sure. I kid you not, the first theory that they have is wrong tomb theory. Wrong tomb? As in, they buried Jesus in a tomb, and then after the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and the other women literally went to the wrong tomb, and it was empty. And from that, they came to the conclusion that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Okay, that well, that's, that is a stretch. It, like, one of the things that struggles with it that I struggle with it is that you'd have to be hella stupid, you know? Well, let's, if we work on the assumption that Mary Magdalene was part of the the group of people that put him in the tomb in the first place, yeah, she's probably going to remember where it is. Also, the tomb is is donated effectively by uh, a character that we think of as what we call Joseph of Arimathea, who was a believer in Jesus. He was quite a uh, a rich follower and was able to donate a tomb. Then. <laughs> we've got a, we've got the stone there put in place of it, which is again. I mean, I'm I'm guessing here, but we're talking between one to three tons. The for this for this this stone, it's been guarded by Roman soldiers, and the first thing that Mary thinks is that somebody has come and stolen stolen the body. You know, she doesn't look at a, an empty tomb and go, "Oh, flipping heck, Jesus must have been resurrected." She goes through the first logical thought. So. For me, wrong tomb theory doesn't work. That's, Do you know what no, I mean? That, that doesn't hold water, unfortunately. Like, it, it, yeah. Because especially if he's being guarded by soldiers as well. That's that's. Mm -hmm. If anything, that's quite a big indicator that 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 might be Jesus' tomb. Yeah. You won't just yeah. go to the wrong tomb. Like, oh, my mistake. I shouldn't have had all that wine. <laughs> Silly me. Silly me. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make any bloody sense. <laughs> so then, let's move on to the next one. We've got the body stealing idea okay right so like let's imagine you and me two absolute first century lads let's, uh, let's let's say we're we're the we're the disciples that just didn't quite make the cut for apostle <laughs> stuff you know we're like we're like 13 and 14 you know we're we're like the apostle keith and the apostle steve or something <laughs> i 
I just wish they existed. Like, I just... <laughs> hey, Steve. Yeah, Keith. You know, I don't think he's noticed us this whole time. No, I don't think he has either, <laughs> but to be honest, I do like what he's talking about. I do too, Steve, to be honest. I think he's got a lot to talk about. So. It's... I wish I could make yeah. that into a film without it being grossly offensive to all of Christianity. The two apostles that didn't even make yeah. it to the judges' houses round of selection. You yeah, know? know. Anyway, anyway. Simon Cowell said, get out. <laughs> anyway, right. So the idea is that the apostles stole the body of um of Jesus, right? Okay. Um to sort of create this fiction that he had risen from the dead okay which on the face of it yeah okay fine so let's now take that through and try and work out what's how that's going to work okay so jesus dies on the on the friday about midday roughly um the sabbath is going to begin at sundown on friday and we'll we'll sort of we'll end on sundown on the saturday I think I've got that that right. Sure. Um, so first of all, as a Jewish person, you're just not allowed to do anything on uh, uh, during during Sabbath. A, you know, you have to stay home. You have to not do any work. You can't do you can't do anything at all. You know. So these dudes have got to sneak out of the house. They've got to find the tomb, which, as I've established, has been guarded by Roman soldiers. Now, let's be honest, Roman soldiers. Tremendous capacity for cruelty, but also incredible levels of discipline. If you fall asleep on the job here as a Roman soldier on guard duty, you will be stoned to death for it. These dudes are incentivized. They are motivated yeah, to be yeah, really they, good guards what they do. Like, you know? they, they are on the payroll of not dying. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's, exactly. It, and like, if yeah. we think about it, like these guys are, you know, these apostles are fishermen. They are like some kind of, like sometimes like tax collectors or, you know, they've, <laughs> they've, they've, they've a variety of jobs, but none of them are highly trained mercenaries able to take out Roman soldiers and then roll a stone away, steal a body and get it back. And even, let, let's assume for a moment that that's true and that's what happened, okay? Like, why though? Does, why would you, why would you do all this stuff? It would, it feels like one of those ideas that, that seems like, you know, good in the face of desperation, but doesn't really have an end game. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like, we better steal it because, you know, if he doesn't rise, then, then you know, we'd, we we might get stoned as well. So we'd probably go get it. But what do we do after that when we've got it? Well, well like, I don't really know. You know, like, it just doesn't seem like it's no, I, I, I don't know either. I mean, let's, like, also let's put aside that it's unclean to be touching uh, a dead body. So culturally, we've got all those taboo issues there. And also, like, the apostles who start off as we talk about being flaky you know they deny jesus they fall asleep on him these guys who are basically teenage boys uh, you know yeah they become the most hardcore ride or die guys you are going to ever see do you know what i mean stephen is the first martyr he gets stoned to death for this peter who again as we say a bit flaky a bit wishy-washy peter gets crucified and he requests to be crucified upside down because he doesn't want the honor of being killed in the same way that his lord is killed john who's probably who's probably the youngest is basically sort of 
imprisoned in first century Alcatraz, these dudes spent a lifetime, an absolute lifetime. Most of their relationship with Jesus happened after Jesus was gone. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you don't get that level of commitment to a fraud. You don't get that level of commitment, that that absolute, it's this and there is no plan B approach to a, a lie you made up, you know? I, I, I quite like the term fervent when it comes to this because yeah. I really do feel that does sum up a very powerful sense of commitment yeah. to, to say god or whatever religion it is that you you commit yourself to because it it feels though it does have like almost a sense of like like magnetism to it and i feel like fervor kind of like describes that quite well now when it comes to stealing the body if they were so fervent and they were so committed so desperately committed to this idea that he was going to rise i don't think they'd have bothered yeah I don't think it makes any sense. Also, these dudes were bricking it after Jesus died. You know, they're I mean, thinking, you would, okay, wouldn't you? Look Jesus, what happened to it. Jesus has been, yeah, Jesus has been killed. They are coming for us. They were all in a room. They were absolutely huddled together. They were terrified, you know? Mm-hmm. Afterwards, like, guys like Peter didn't know what to do with themselves. They kind of went back to fishing because they were like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Did you know what I mean? I mean, what? Uh, this, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Peter's you know? just there like, there's one thing I do know, and that is fish. so then let's assume for example that the Roman authority right and again yeah okay they could have done that but why though you know A why would you do it let's assume for example it was to humiliate the Christians okay I mean I think they're already pretty humiliated but if they do steal the body why don't they ever produce it do you know what I mean why don't they ever say like no he, he actually is dead we pulled a prank on you, lol. April Fools. April Fools. I mean, it just—it just seems, yeah. It wouldn't. There's, there's no flex really there, is there? You know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. it's just like we had the body and we've got it again. Ah. Yeah. Like, who bloody yeah. cares? It's you killed. Like, you killed him. All right. Oh, all right, guys. Thank, thanks for that. Um. So we'll we'll move past that one. Uh, another idea is the hallucination theory. Uh, the idea that everybody who saw him was hallucinating exactly exactly how many people saw him i was looking i was doing a bit of research into this i think there are there's upwards of 500 people saw him forgive my um slightly crude phrasing but so so 500 people all at once are meant to be tripping balls (laughs) all at the same time here's the thing right there's not even um he doesn't. He doesn't just turn up and then disappear. Because you'd be like, yeah, okay, fine, that could. That could. Everybody is is overwhelmed with grief. But Jesus is recorded as appearing ten times to his disciples. Okay, so he 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 goes, he comes away, and the rest of it, and he appears to people who who know him really well, and he appears to people who doesn't know that well, people who don't necessarily have that that emotional connection to him, that sort of thing. You with me? Yeah, sure, you know? sure. And also, do you remember what I said about how Peter had gone back to fishing? Uh-huh. Like one of the times they see Jesus is Jesus is there standing on the shore and I kid you not he cooks them breakfast yes and, the, and he's and like ghosts can't cook right <laughs> ghosts can't cook like that is I mean if they could there is a money making opportunity there because you know ghosts don't need to, to eat so you could pay them less than minimum wage be fine you know <laughs> just as a disclaimer as well with all of this I am having to sort of suspend my disbelief a little bit I, yeah. I don't know if I, I can't say with any certainty that he did actually come back 
I don't think for a second he actually resurrected yeah. and came back from the dead, but I'm sure there is a lot of explanations that could lead to people believing that that was the case. Do you know what well, I mean? Like, think about it think about it this way right i am helping you to try to come up with an alternative theory and i'm just working through some other ones that you might consider and then you might have to discount in this case you could see it that i'm helping you to eliminate some options Does that sound okay yeah no of course i'm a, i was merely providing context for the audience bang in one theory is the twin theory have you heard this one I've not heard this one, but I, I think I'm going to like this one because it reminds me of the prestige. I think you can... <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so the idea is that either, A, Jesus had a twin brother that nobody knew about, and either that twin dies on the cross in Jesus' place, yeah. or the twin is the one that is appearing to people after Jesus' death, you know? That'd be the biggest bait and switch in history, that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Putting aside the fact that there is no reference to a twin brother, we know that Jesus had brothers, uh, his, or half-brothers, technically, who were even his his disciples. I believe, I think it's James. But there are some books in the Bible that are actually written by a, a, a brother of Jesus Christ, you know? Now... I'm thinking about this. You and Rob get on pretty well. Do you think he's likely to die in your place, given the option? I mean... It's a big ask, isn't it? it? I wouldn't want him to. I don't know if if he would. It would would have to be exceptional. And also, it it would, wouldn't it? You know, And then, or the idea that he'd go around pretending to be you after you died, which, again, if he did do that, that'd just be rude. Do you know what I mean? To be honest, if Rob did do that, I'd be a bit like, mate, like... I mean, if I could come back as a ghost, going back yeah. to ghost for a second, I'd be like, bro, like, you know, like, but yeah, you're not, what, you're, what, you're t- what are you doing? You know, like, but you, you know, for for one, you're taller than me. <laughs> you know, what I mean? like, there's it, <laughs> it, just, just many factors that would not work. So, there were other ways for you to get those trainers of mine that you really liked. You know, <laughs> I don't have trainers he likes. <laughs> ah, That's very. That, I don't have trainers he likes. The last one is what they call swoon theory. And it's the idea that Jesus went through everything, all the the torture, the scourging, the carrying the cross, the being crucified, and that he wasn't actually dead, but he was still alive. He was basically like unconscious, but on the absolute cusp of death. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. That feels more (sighs) believable, but considering the amount of absolute torment and destructive sort of like actions he went through it feels stretched but it does feel like the most logical explanation it's the most logical but again we're not dealing with some with very logical options here you know so yeah you watch those torture scenes that does not look like a dude who is going to be able first of all he's been swaddled up in all these clothes he's gonna have to find a way to wriggle out of them in the first place put them back in such a way as to make it look like it's all in the same figure of his body, move the stone back, overpower the guards, and then, like, less than 48 hours later, start appearing to people here and there. Yeah, I mean, if if that film's anything to go by, you're watching him carry the cross and everything, you're watching him sort of, like, get torched and that, man's on his ass for, like... Yeah. 80% of the film. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's yeah. not. He, two days later, he's not going to be like, oh, do you know what? Actually, I'm going to roll back that 30 kilogram stone. Do you know what I mean? No, yeah. he's not going to bloody do that. I mean, for me, that is as miraculous 
to believe that someone that a torture victim is able to have the physical strength and to to do that when like just the sheer amount of blood loss first of all needs to be tended to yes but i do feel i do still feel out of everything that we talked about that it does feel it does sort of hold the most logical merit in the sense that you do actually come across a lot of miraculous recoveries of people exhibiting strength when they really shouldn't be able to exhibit strength just from a yeah. from a, a physiological and biological perspective so there is every chance it's a small chance but there is every chance that that could have happened maybe possibly but yeah, I'm, but, see- but I'm saying that it is slim do you know what I mean? It's See, this I feel like we're in an area here where, you know, where you say, like, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> and it's this sort of thing, like, in a realm of stupid-ass theories, this is incrementally less stupid, you know? Yeah, that's basically what I'm trying to say, yeah. Like, it, it if if by some small modicum of a chance that, that that did happen and he had some miraculous recovery and could suddenly move tons of stone... yeah. And become an expert linen folder, then yeah, maybe. But it's it's asking a lot. <laughs> it's asking a lot. There is no recorded evidence to actually suggest it, and it's it really is quite is, is stretching those realms of credibility for for my mm. money. You know. Mm. So when when faced with this issue, what do we? How do we logically deal with this? You know. And I keep thinking about uh, an Aristotle quote. Aristotle, obviously a uh, Greek philosopher, one of the first people to sort of write down any ideas about about rules for drama or anything like that. Yeah. And he has a, a phrase he said when talking about drama. Probable impossibilities are to be preferred to improbable possibilities, you know? And I think what he was trying to say was, uh, like, an impossible event, like a miracle, is more likely to to be believed over something that is theoretically possible... But highly improbable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah, it's it's easier to reconcile in your mind that it's it was just a miracle because that yeah. that takes less logical steps to, it, to less go. logical steps. And it's it's a for me, it's like I literally feel like I'm shifting gear. You know, mm. I call it my faith hat and my fact hat. You know, yeah. Sometimes I'm taking a leap of faith and I am believing in the resurrection of a human being who was also the son of God. And then sometimes I uh, I put on my fact hat where it's like, okay, you need to prove this to me without a shadow of doubt. It needs to have been like blind tested and peer reviewed, and then I'm going to believe you. Do you know what I mean? This is this is my whole thing. Um, that's I do take the fact hat with that one, and always have because I just think like I've always considered that. Part part of the, uh, of the Bible to be more sort of in like uh, fable territory than it is in fact. Mm. I know it's and without any kind of like um, disrespect to anybody I think it's more of a storytelling device and something yeah. that sort of rounds off the story well so that you you're not left just thinking, well, that was horrible. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. and, 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 you know, that may well be the case, but at the same time, I don't think it diminishes. I, th- I think you could probably look at it in a certain way that it might be, it could be metaphorical in the sense of that Jesus did continue to live on, but he lived on through the, you know, the, 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 the prayers and the teachings of his disciples. In that way, I think that some people do, in some ways, live on in a lot, of, you know, through memory and through teachings. Yeah. Uh, so maybe yeah. so, and I think I think to my mind, if we're not looking at it from a literal perspective, that's the most logical conclusion: is there is almost artistic license in a sense, yeah, to yeah. To, to 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 basically explain how Jesus's 
self would live on as an entity without him being corporeal. Yeah, yeah. That is is very nuanced, very well thought out and really elegantly put and I'm really glad you you put it like that. I don't believe that in the slightest, but that's that is a really good way of putting it. And what I find interesting is that there are parts of the Bible that I believe are essentially an extended metaphor, and there are parts of the Bible that I believe are, are a matter of historical record. And sure. what I find is interesting is that you and I both believe that, and it's it's not so much a case of binaries, but more of a case of sliding scale of of where the metaphor starts and stops and yeah, where no, the fact begins. You know, just it just because it's one of those things just because i don't believe doesn't mean i'm not fascinated you know what i mean like mm, I, I find yeah. I, I do find it very interesting so and i feel that the the issue i find is that this is one of those things if you even if you if you take a sort of solid cold-hearted logical approach to it and like look at the evidence in as much detail as you possibly can all these alternative theories start start crumbling away you know sure the the, the last thing i was i was trying to make out is that credulous does not mean gullible there's a difference between making a concerted leap of faith and just believe in everything that you're told, you know? Yeah. My view of, of miracles and miraculous events are is, again, this process of, okay, well, let's eliminate every other possible conceivable option. And then when we've done that, then we can start looking at the supernatural possibilities for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think when you've... It's, it's kind of the, the art of deduction, really, isn't it? When, yeah. when, you, when you take away all the other aspects, what is left kind of thing. And, you know, I... I I can I can subscribe to that mode of thought whether I believe in the outcome or not is is well that's up to me absolutely okay we're going to bring it to a close there because this is my goodness definitely going to be our longest episode I don't know if I'm going to even have the strength to edit this one down <laughs> if you've made it this far ladies and gents thank you for listening so much if you do listen to us please leave us a review I cannot tell you how much we appreciate you if you're listening to us right now mm -hmm. and what i would mm -hmm. really really like is just leave us a review just let us know you're listening even if you hated it even if you disagree with everything we said just let us know you you listened it, we'll, we'll do our best to improve he definitely won't come round your house knock on your door and go right now listen here I've put, <laughs> no, giles i've put that life behind me okay you know i'm trying to turn a new leaf <laughs> i'm not the warrington leg smasher anymore <laughs> <laughs> No, I, but, but in all seriousness, yeah, do leave us a review because it just lets us know that people are listening and we do really value it. You know, we value knowing yeah. what you think and, and what we could do better or what we did great. So just let us know. It really makes our day. Okay, ladies and gents, as I say, we don't have any specific series lined up yet. I have a real inkling to do a, a mini series on like horror films or something. Mm -hmm. So I'll have to see what comes of that. See. You'll hear from us again. Yeah. Okay. So in the meantime, Phil, have you had a good time? I really enjoyed discussing this one. The story of Jesus and the story of the crucifixion and Easter is something that was brought up on. And yeah, okay, I don't harbour any any belief in it in, in a spiritual sense, but I still really enjoy discussing it and I find it fascinating. So yes, I had a great time. Me too. Thank you very much for, for listening to us, listeners. Bye. Bye-bye. Body Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Goddard Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star, in which case, travel to Washington DC and break into the National Archives Museum. Silently overpower the guards and disrupt the CCTV with a looping feed of empty corridors. Then write your negative review on the back of the Declaration of Independence. We'll definitely see it there, guys, I promise.